You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. All right, Exodus chapter 20. Um, if ushers can make sure that those Bibles are available. Exodus chapter 20, let me read this and just plead to God for help this morning. Exodus 20, let's start in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord your God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Let's, um, that's our text. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word and its power and its potency and its way that it could, uh, by your spirit, can cut through um, ideology and, and temptations and, and trials and, and questions, Lord, and it could, it could answer just a lifetime of questions just by your, your presence. And so as the uh, I myself place myself under the authority of your word, and as the pastor of the church, place this church under the authority of your word, and I say, God, speak today. May the, the, the text come alive in the context of, uh, uh, of the scriptures, and may it come alive in this context in San Francisco right now, God. And I just say, I need your help. Pray that you would, and here, show yourself as the true and living God. In the face of so many things that are destroying us. And I ask God that, that you would teach us, and that we would learn today, that we would grow and mature. And I say, my heart, God, that you are the Lord and there is no other. In Jesus' name, amen. To us, um, God, for I think most of us, if not all of us, God is a, is a concept. Actually, in our English definition of the word God, it's, it is a concept. If you were to look up God, um, the, the definition is simply a supreme being. It's, it's this divine being out there somewhere. So in the English, when we interpret or we define the word God, a God, God could be a he or a she. It could be an it. It could be a they. It could, God can be a state of mind. God can be a state of being. God, to us, is a concept. Let me show you what I mean by this. Let me, let me just read to you a couple of uh, phrases, things that you might have said or you've heard said indeed or, or, or you've thought. God loves me and accepts me, and I don't think that God would judge me. God wants me to be happy, and he wants us all to get along. There are many ways to God. Have you ever, have you ever heard any of these things? Have you ever said them? Even, even here, I know um, in this room, there, there are, are a lot of us that have said these things, and there are many of you that even though you're a Christian, you believe these things. You believe that, that, that these things are true. 
that there are truisms in our city and, and the way that you live. Now, are they true? Well, let's just look at this. Let's look at the first one. Does God loves me and accepts me? I don't think he would judge me. Is that true? Yes. God wants me to be happy and he wants us to all get along. Is that true? Yes. There are many ways to God. Is that true? Yes. How is that all true? Your God does. Your God loves you and accepts you and won't judge you. Your God wants you to be happy and wants us all to get along. Your God, there's many ways to him. The God that you created in your own image, those things are true. The God that we created in our own image doesn't judge us. The God that we created in our own, own image only loves us. It only loves everyone. There's, all, there's many ways to him. We all want the comforts of a loving God without the, the, the demands of a holy God. But what about the words from Yahweh? And that word Yahweh, I'm going to define it in a second. But what about the words that we just read in the Ten Commandments? What about these words? You shall have no other gods before me. What do I do with that? What do you do with that? In, in the city that we live in, in this area that we live in, what do we do with these exclusive type claims of God? You are to have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. How do we reconcile the, the words here in Exodus chapter 20 that are repeated over and over again that Jesus even repeats? How do we reconcile these words with the pluralistic society that we live in? And all I mean by pluralistic society is that, that we live, we've grown up with people in our, in our school or went to university with or even roommate with with other ideologies and other religions. We're immersed in them, especially in the Bay Area. We have grown up around Islam and Hinduism and Baha'i and Confucianism and Buddhism and even humanism. Though it's an ideology, it's very much religion. How do we reconcile the exclusive claims of God, even the exclusive claims of Jesus in the middle of all these other religions? How do we reconcile the claims of God in Exodus chapter 20 with the universalism that's around us? Universalism being a belief that God is out there somewhere and there are many ways to God. Jesus can be a path to God, but there are many other ways to God. How do you reconcile this with the heavy spirituality that permeates San Francisco? I know a lot of people that ditch God altogether because God causes trouble and wars and fights. All that they want to be is spiritual. So let's just be spiritual in San Francisco. Let's not talk about God. How do we reconcile a pluralistic, universalistic society that just always wants to be spiritual? How do we how do we confront these sort of, when I read Exodus chapter 20, some of us have, have a concept and, and, a, and a context of the Bay Area so much so that we read that and we're like, well, he doesn't mean that. That he can't mean that. First of all, I think it might help to know that this is, none of this is new. The things that you're wrestling with right now are the things that even we're wrestling with in this sermon are not new. The Ten Commandments were written in the context of a polytheistic society. And the world into which the first Christians carried the gospel was a religiously plural world. The questions that we have today are about the exclusivity of God are not new and they are not without answers. And so this is how I want to begin to answer the questions today, though I won't answer all these questions today. Hopefully this is a conversation that opens up in this church. And again, I'll be here afterwards and tomorrow night, but this is how I want to begin to answer these questions. Okay, so when 
God says in the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods. What does he mean by other gods? If we were to throw other gods in quotations, what does other gods, what are other gods? And the second thing that I want to do is I want us to wrestle with why God wants exclusive claim as the only God that we worship. Why does God want exclusivity? So, point one, other gods are over one heading, other gods, and then only God. So the first point can take some work, so I'm going to need you to turn again to Exodus chapter 20. Now, Exodus 20, there, it, it's un, it, you need to understand, what we need to understand first to get this and what God's saying here is that there are different Hebrew words for God and Lord. And it's important to understand the differences to understand the first commandment. Look at the first commandment, Exodus 22. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am the Lord. Now, notice in your Bible, on your lap or on your phone or on the screen here, the Lord is in all caps. And you might notice that as you're studying through, especially the Old Testament. Lord, all caps. What is that word? When you see all caps, Lord, that is the word in Hebrew, Yahweh. This is God's name for himself. This is the, not God, the name that God gives himself. There are many names for God. God says, that I'm jealous, I'm loving, I'm this. But this is the only name that, that describes who God is. This is the only name that God gives himself. I am. When most ask him, who are you? It's like, I am. Well, you are what? I'm Yahweh. Well, what does that mean? Well, I'm going to explain to you over the course of a very long period of time. But I am that I am. I've always existed. I always will. I'm the first. I'm the last. I am God. Now, I am Yahweh. Now, that's, that's what Lord means, Yahweh. It's God's specific name for himself. It's his proper name, Yahweh. And very important that you realize that and understand that. Now, this next word, I am Yahweh, your God. That next word, God, is the word Elohim. Now, the word Elohim in Hebrew can be translated God, capital G-O-D, or God, lowercase g-o-d, or gods. It can be translated as any of those. It just depends on the context. If you guys remember, when we uh, played around with some hermeneutics on Sunday mornings, I, I would give the example of trunk. What does trunk mean? It all depends on the context. Is it a trunk of a car? Is it a suitcase trunk? Is it swim trunks? Like, what kind of trunk? It just depends on the surrounding context. Elohim is that sort of word. God could mean God, capital G, it can mean lowercase g, it can mean many gods. Okay, so here's the kicker. Verse 3. Verse 2 says, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, your Elohim, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Verse 3. You shall have no other Elohim before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the I Yahweh, your Elohim, am a jealous Elohim. Here's the point. There are many Elohims. There are many gods. You're like, what? Wait, wait, wait. What are you saying? In the context of Exodus chapter 20, What God says is this, I am the Lord, Yahweh, your Elohim, don't have any other Elohim before me. Same exact word. He's saying, I am Yahweh, Elohim, and there are other Elohims out there. Now, what does that mean? Now, 
Let me just show you this as it pertains to throughout all, a lot of the Old Testament, even the New Testament, we'll get to that in a second, shows this. Ex, uh, Psalm 86.8 says, There is none like you among Elohim, O Lord. There is none like you among the gods. Ex, uh, Psalm 97.9 says, For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. We sing this even on Sunday morning. We sing songs that talk about God is greater. There's none like him among the gods. Turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, verse, verse 12. In the context of the Passover here, God is delivering um, Israel out of bondage in Egypt as they were making their way out. Uh, remember, we talked about this last couple weeks. God said, um, Moses, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go so they may come up and worship me. Moses does that. Pharaoh says, yes, no, yes, no, like a really horrible girlfriend or boyfriend. You're like, yes, no, yes, no. Does that all the time, yes, no. And then God's like, okay, if you don't release them, I'm going to have to a full-on attack Egypt, and this is what he does. God does that, and look at how God does it. Look at verse 12. Well, just one verse I'm going to read. For I will pass through the land, this is God speaking, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am Yahweh. This is what God says. I am going to execute judgment on the gods. The mindset that the Hebrews had, the worldview of the time, was that, he- that the heavens and the earth were populated with many gods. Remember, Israel had just spent several hundred years in Egypt living among a polytheistic people. And what's happening here in Exodus is that Yahweh was showing how the, all the other gods were a sham. They were false. They could not deliver. This is exactly what the ten plagues are about. If you go through and read the ten plagues and study the gods of Egypt, every single plague was aimed at a specific Egyptian deity. For example, one of the Egyptian gods was their sun god, their creator god, and his name was Amun-Ra. The second to the last plague, what does Yahweh do? He blots out the sun. Only in Egypt, the headquarters of Amun-Ra, and it's pitch black for three days, a darkness that you can feel. See, the conclusion drawn is not that these gods don't exist, but that God is Yahweh the Lord and he is over and beats them at their own game. God was judging the false gods, showing that they had no real power. This is why the Ten Commandments open up with, I am Yahweh who brought you out of slavery. Remember, I am Yahweh among these other false gods. There are other gods out there, and they are powerful, but I am Yahweh, the Lord your God. Remember that. Have no other Elohim before me. I am God, the, Elo, the, the, the God who, who rules, who's over everything. And, and the main distinction, now what distinguishes God from other gods? God is creator God. I created the sun and the moon. I created everything. Yahweh was demonstrating his incomparable might and love 
his faithfulness to the promises he made to his people beginning with Abraham that I will bring you into a land. So the next question that might come up in our minds, I think it naturally comes up, are who are these other gods? If there are other gods, who are these other gods? Well, there was Molech and Asherah, these Canaanite gods that in order to worship them, you sacrificed your children, your infant children to them. You burned them alive in sacrifice to these gods. There was another god called Baal who gets a lot of press in the Old Testament. Baal, for example, was the god of fertility. He was the personification of the fertility of the field. He was the god of rain, the god of thunder. He was the god of fruitfulness, fertility. So when the, when the sun's heat scorched everything, people said that Baal was dying. But when autumn rain made everything green, people said that Baal was coming to life again. But here's a question. If Baal was a god, where is he now? You're like, is there a place for decommissioned gods? Like, they, go, they go, they're like retired gods, and there's like Zeus and Poseidon and like the X-Men that are there, and you know, a retired God, like, does there a place that Baals go? Like, I, reti- I was a God at one time. I was living large, and, you know, I just kind of, people stopped believing in me. I lost power. Like that done 10 Clash of Titans movie remake, horrible, original rules. Anyway, um, like, is it like that? Like, decommissioned gods, like, gods are just done with. Is that what happens? Well, here's, here's the deal. Baal didn't really exist. See, an idol or a god is nothing more than a human projection. However, there's a power that comes from these idols that are real, and no one can argue that. Baal had real power. Asherah had real power. Poseidon had real power. Epaphrodites had real power. I mean, these gods that people worship had real power. And though as the years have passed and many gods have disappeared, new ones have appeared. So the Old Testament was Baal and Asherah and, and Molech, but in the New Testament, it's it's um, Athena and, and Epaphrodites and all these other gods in the New Testament. And they now are gone, and now there's no more Zeus. He no longer sits on Mount Olympus. The names may disappear, but the power remains. Where does the power of these gods come from? Let's get into some more familiar territory. Let's go to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians. It's like Old Testament gets kind of trippy sometimes. Let's go to, let's go to 1 Corinthians, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. Um, they're, they're a young church. They're dealing with a lot of sin problems in the church. Paul's writing to address some of these sin problems. One of this, these problems is that there um, is this issue of food sacrifice to idols, which doesn't seem like a big deal to you and me, but it was a big deal then. They would have these temples, and they would sacrifice these meals to their gods, and then they would sell the, the, the meat that was sacrificed to idols in the market, and you can buy it, and it's actually fairly cheap, and you, they would believe that once they ate this meat that you would become one with this idol, and it would give you power and all this other stuff. So the church comes along, and, the, and, and, and people are saved in the church, and then people that are saved in the church don't eat food sacrificed to idols because idols are a bad deal, and food sacrificed to idols are bad. But then Christians start getting mature, and they, they start realizing, wait, gods are no gods at all. Idols are nothing. There's only one God. So meat sacrificed to idols, they're not even sacrificed to anything because idols are nothing. Eat up. And so they were eating up, and they were partying. And then mature Christians could handle that. And then young Christians started coming in. And they're like, hey, we're going out to the temple. We're going to go party tonight. And they're like, what? You can, like, party at the temple and follow Jesus? I'm in. And these young Christians were getting stumbled. 
And so Paul writes this. He says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of this, that, that uh, all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And, and what Paul is saying is, he goes, listen, I know you guys all know. Some of you guys know, hey, listen, I'm smart. There's no such thing as idols. When you sacrifice something to, to Athena, there's no, there's no real thing there. We know that Athena's no, not a real god or real goddess, so no big deal. It's like, oh yeah, smarty pants, love puffs up. It would be like, you know, well, Jesus drank real wine. There's people that go around going, Jesus didn't drink real wine. It was like grape juice. And most of us know, like, no, it was real wine. It wasn't like Welsh's grape juice. Knowledge, that's my knowledge. Guess what that means? Bring it on. Drink as much wine as I want. Jesus drank wine, I'm going to drink wine. Knowledge then puffs up. What if you have someone who's an alcoholic and he's with you? I mean, this is a whole different subject. But it's like knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. What are you going to do out of love? What's, are you going to be motivated by love or are you going to be motivated by knowledge? Okay, that's the context. So he goes on. Look, look, uh, look at verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not know yet as he ought to know. You think you know something? You don't really know anything. But if, someone, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, here, here's where we're getting at. As to eating the food offered to idols, we know that, look at it's in quotes, an idol has no real existence, and that there are no God but one. There is no God but one. Notice how those are in quotations. This is what Corinth was throwing around. Hey, listen, there's no such thing as idols. There's only one God. Eat up. That's what, that's what they were throwing around. But look at this. Paul says this. As indeed there are, oh, um, sorry, skipped ahead. Idol has no real existence, and we know that there's only one God, verse 5. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God. So these people were throwing around, hey, listen, there's no such thing as many gods. and There's only one God, and idols are nothing. You know what Paul says? Actually, no. There are many gods, and there are many lords. But for us, there's one God. What's the difference between these other gods and the one true God? And Paul says, this is the difference. For us, there's one God, the Father, from whom all things are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and are and through whom we exist. What Paul is saying is that the difference between our God and the other Elohim is that our God is the creator God. Creator God. And actually, a lot of people think that Paul here is rewording the Shema from Deuteronomy right here. The hero of Israel, the Lord our God, the, the Lord is one. He's reciting it right here and he's putting it into a Christological context. That's what's going on right here. There is one God, the Father, and he created everything, and through him we exist. Now, Paul, what Paul loves to do is he just kind of sidetracks forever. He kind of goes on tangents, ADD, whatever, and then he comes back to it. He's talking about food sacrifice to idols, and he goes, oh yeah, and then this, and that, and this, and this. Then he comes back to it in chapter 10. So flip over a page to chapter 10, verse 14. Now, the question that's still on the table is where do these, these other gods and lords get their power? And then, so look what Paul says here in chapter 10, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So this is the whole point of everything he's saying. Flee from idolatry. Commandment number one, don't have any other gods before me. Why, this, why is this so, if we think, if idols are nothing, why do we have to flee from them? 
They're just statues. They're just pieces of wood. They're nothing. But there's power in them. This is what Paul is saying. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not the participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Stop there. Overachievers, don't read anymore. Look over here. Paul is saying this. When you take communion, do you not believe that you are partaking in something mystical and spiritual that you are becoming, in a sense, one with Christ because of this, the Eucharist that he's put forth? Do you believe that? That you take the body and the blood of Christ, you're saying yes to Christ in a way that you become one with the reality of who Jesus is. Do you believe that? They're like, yeah, we believe that. Okay, keep reading. Because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? What am I saying? Here it is. He's finally getting to it. That foods offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? There's that brings us back to the Ten Commandments. Are we stronger than he? Now, I know I just threw out demons. You're like, whoa, whoa, wait. You went demons? Like You're you're just calling things out like just going demonic then. Who are these other Elohim? Why do these other Elohim have power? Why did Baal have power? Why do, why do idols have such power? Why are idols nothing but idols everything? If idols are nothing, why does God in the very opening line of, of the Ten Commandments say, have no other gods, don't make idols? If idols are nothing, why are they such a draw for us? Why do religions and certain religion, religious practices and meditations offer real spiritual experiences? Where do those come from? Why can anything be a God? Why can strength be a God, as it says in Habakkuk chapter 1? How, why can gold be a God, Job 31? Or money can be called mammon, which was a God in Matthew 6. Why can we even make, as Paul says in Philippians 3, we can make our stomachs our God. Like your God is your belly. Whatever your God says to do, you do it. Whatever your appetites say to do, you do, you obey. How can anything become a God? Why do these things? We can say, well, in the, in the times of antiquity, they, they, they were a polytheistic society, and so they worshiped everything. Okay, let's give that to them then. But we don't do that anymore, right? We don't. We don't worship the God of money or the God of fertility. We don't, yeah, we do, but we kind of de- demythologize it. We kind of rip it of its mythology and we just call it what it is. I live my life for my relationships. I live my life. I sacrifice everything for my self-image, my body image, my, and you insert whatever it is that's there. We do the same, and it has such power. There are things in your life right now, I know that there's things that are, that are swirling around in your life that have complete control over you. You could do nothing about it. Why do they have so much control? Why do things have so much power? And this is why. Because there's a real enemy. There are real forces that are trying to destroy the good of God. 
the love of God, the rule of God, and the shalom of God. And these forces, as Paul, Paul's words, not mine, calls them out as demonic forces, are behind gods, idols, selfishness, ideologies, and even, and even false religions. And Paul calls them out. The reason why we're to keep ourselves from idols, church, because idols have this dark force. I know that sounds super Star Wars or something, but it's just the demonic presence. Now, I'm not saying that you're dating a demon. Some of you guys are like, but you don't really know who I'm dating. So I'm not saying you're working for a demon, though some of you guys would think you you are. I'm saying that those things that you think are just things have spiritual force, spiritual pull behind them, that you can become one with these things. So why does God command, and why is the commandment worship God alone? And what the the Ten Commandments start off by saying is something very serious that I want our church to take seriously, that I want us to think about deeply. I think, and, and the context of which the Ten Commandments are written in is that God is saying that there are other gods. And these gods are powerful. And they can enslave us, and they can entrench us, and we can be enthralled by them. It's not just a warning, it's, it's by grace a protection by God. What things have you given into, even spiritually? What ideologies have you come to believe that are not of God at all? That you need to stop and go, that is not God. That is not Yahweh. See, the ironic thing about everything is that These gods have no power to create life at all. Um, So the uh, Old Testament prophets would just make fun of these idols. They make fun of them. Like Isaiah has this part where he's like, you you cut down a tree and you cut it in half and then you, you chop it up and you make a fire with it and you cook your meat on it and you warm your hands and then with the rest of it, you carve an idol and you go, this is my God. Like, that's so stupid. Like, you did that. Like, half of your God's in the fire burning, and the other half you're worshiping. You, you, but but the, 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 the prophets made fun of idolatry, but they understood the real power behind it. See, false gods have no power to create. So they have to have you make them idols of themselves. Like I, and, and they had to have you carry them around. Hey, would you pick me up and uh, move me over there? I don't really have the power to move myself. Um, that's what idols do. That's what gods do, false gods. But God, what's the difference between God, Yahweh, and other gods? God is the creator God. God is creator. And you know who his image is? You and me. And he made us, and he fashioned us with his own hands. God is saying, I am creator God. I created the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth and humanity, and I created it all, and everything else that you worship is me. And that's why Romans 1 said, the, when we exchange the truth of God for a lie, we worship the created thing and not the creator. And so why does God, second point, and I'll close with this, and I hope to answer some stuff again tomorrow night, but even more stuff next week. 
Why does God say, only me? And this is where, if I can, just get to the heart a little bit more. Because anything can become a God. Anything can. I want to ask you this question. This is something that I was just meditating on that if you really think about it, if you meditate on it, I know that God will reveal himself to you in a pretty powerful way. What in your life has come before God? Think about that. What in your life? Taking the, the first part of the sermon, how, the power of it to, to, to shape us and to actually cause us harm and destroy us and enslave us. What in your life has come before God? Relationships? It's an easy one. A spouse? A child? No child? No spouse? A pet? A job? A body image? A physical ailment? Money? Influence. Well, how, how do I know that any of those things, how do I know that, that any of those things have come before God? Here's another question. What has meant more to your fundamental happiness than God? What has meant more to your fundamental joy than God? You guys know, if you guys have been in church a long time, you guys go through things, and, and, then, and then you guys will come in for counseling. I'm not revealing anyone's counseling appointments, so don't, don't worry right now. Oh my gosh, she's not telling me. No. Or you come up for prayer, and you're, you're dealing with this thing, and, and we can say this. Remember God, you go, oh, I know. You ever say that to yourself? Oh, I, yeah, I know that. Yeah, you remember God, yeah. Now, obviously, you forgot it. Obviously, something is not clicking. Obviously, you've made something else more fundamental to your happiness. Your fundamental happiness is the fact that you are in a relationship. Now that's gone, your fundamental, fundamental happiness is gone. I mean, there's mourning. I mean, if there's a loss of someone, there is a period of mourning and all that stuff. But did you bury your God? Was your God your spouse and you buried him? Was your God your pet and you buried it? Was your God your job and it died? Your God died. That's what happened. That's why your heart is shattered. Your God died. What has influenced your joy more than God? What has influenced your decisions more than God? What has caused your anxiety to a greater degree than God's peace? That's an idol. That's a powerful, sometimes even spiritually dark and demonic idol. But if you have any sense at all, you might answer back. How then do I love God most of all and still live responsibly? Everyone in here is a very responsible citizen. So let me me just, here's one little column of, this is responsible living right here. I need to eat food. That's just a thing. Dave, I don't know if you know about food, like we have to eat food. I need an apartment or a place to live. I need a career. I need relationships. I need leisure. I need physical health. How do I have those things and have God too? Tell me, like, okay, I, I, do, I want to do the whole God thing, like, oh, Jesus only, all this stuff, but then I have to go to work tomorrow. And I have to vacuum my house tonight and do laundry. Like, do I just play worship music while I do those things? Like, how do I do the normal things in life then and not make them idols? This is everyone's question because everyone can get, pastors can get really big, like up here, like, Jesus only idol. And everybody's like, I hate everything. You walk out and like, well, where are you going? I don't know, get a sandwich because I got to eat. Like, oh, that's an idol. Like, anyone who would wait in line for that sandwich, you know, that's idolatry. 
Well, how do you know if it's an idol? Here's, 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 here's a good checklist of idolatry. You don't have to write these down if, unless you want to, but they'll be online later this week. Idolatry takes all of your time, demands it. You're not just your working time, but your thinking time. All of your time. Every part of it consumes you. Your heart. Your passions. It takes your money. There used to be old school pastors that said, you want to know what you worship? Let me sh- show me your, your checkbook. But no one cares checkbooks anymore. Like, show me your mint.com statement or whatever. You know, I like, what, show, where do you spend your money? Are you giving to need? Are you sacrificially giving your money away? Or is it to yourself? Like, I, got, I made extra money. I'm going to buy something for myself. I'm going to take a vacation. Well, then you kind of know who your God is then. It's probably you. What has, what has you sacrificing? Everything for it. God? Your affection. Your mental space. Here's another, here's a litmus test or an acid test of, of if that thing's an idolatry, an, an idol. Have you ever lied to get it? Promotion? I lied to get that promotion. Why? Because work is my God. Success is my God. My reputation is my God. Have you ever coveted? Looked at it like, I want, I, how do I get that thing? It's probably your God. Ever use sexuality to progress in it? Ever used, ever flirted, ever given more of your body and yourself away because you wanted it? Maybe that relationship's your God because you were willing to give something that you told yourself you'd never give. Ever sacrifice something you, ever sacrifice something you never should obtain? Ever give something away? Ever sacrifice something to this God just to obtain it, just to please it? Now, most of us in here, 99%, since this is first service, I know there's like two people here that are like, no to all of that. There's like two of you in here. This is what we say, though. It's normal. This is how people live This is how you have to live in this city. This is how we have to live in this generation. Everyone believes this about overworking. It's normal. Everyone believes this about relationships. It's normal. Everyone believes this about sexuality. It's normal. The context of Exodus chapter 20 is God had called them out of a polytheistic society and was bringing them into Canaan, which was a polytheistic society. They were to go into this land with this inscribed on their hearts. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord, Yahweh, have no other gods before me. Do you think that you're the only follower of God to live in history with all of these normal options in front of you? You don't think they went to Canaan like you can worship Baal, you can worship Asher, you can worship all these other gods. Which one do you choose? Do you think you're the only, only follower of God to ever be faced with the decision, do I worship all these other things that are normal in the world or do I worship God alone? Even though I look silly and stupid, even though I have to keep ritual and, and come go to temple just to, to remind myself what I believe, do you think you're the only one? 
When the church came on the scene after the death and resurrection of Jesus, it was birthed into a polytheistic society. Normal was the worship of many gods and many lords, and Christianity burst on the scene with this one mantra, Jesus is Lord. No, you mean Caesar is Lord. No, I mean Jesus is Lord. This flew in the face of normal. When the disciples were warned against speaking in the name of Jesus, this is what they said. Tell me if this connects in your mind at all with the first commandment. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name. We can't help but speak about Jesus because there's no other God. There's no other name. There's no other way of salvation. God has been challenging what we call and accept as normal ever since Genesis 3. Once you pass Genesis 3, normal is no longer an infallible guide to our creator's plan. God doesn't say, well, that's no- you guys live in the Bay Area. That's kind of normal there, right? God's like, yeah, they do. You know what? I'm going I'm to chill on that on the Bay Area for a bit. He doesn't do that in any culture in any time. He calls his people out. And it looks like this. Joshua 24, one last place before we, we close. Joshua 24. The children of Israel, the generation that passed because they disobeyed God, finally God, God was leading the children of Israel into the promised land. And as they were going in, they were led by this new leader named Joshua. And as they were going into the promised land, this is what Joshua told the children of Israel as they were standing around him and he was, he was telling them, you're going to the promised land, remember God, remember what he said. But this is what he said in verse 14. He says, now therefore, fear the Lord, fear Yahweh. Now you're starting to recognize it now, hopefully. Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve Yahweh. Put away those gods. You have gods. Put them away. Put away the gods that your fathers served. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve Yahweh, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods, the Elohim your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the Elohim, the Amorites, and the, whose land you dwelt. But as for me and my house, I'm going to serve Yahweh. You, you live in a context, Israel, of all these gods. And you're going to go into a context with all these other gods. You're not going to ever get away from this, ever. There's always going to be options on what, who you're going to serve. But choose who you're going to serve. Choose this day whom you're going to serve. And Joshua said, as a leader, as for me and my house, we're going to serve Yahweh. There is no other name. Now, as the intensity of idolatry comes from this evil force, evil power, that sounds super Star Wars, but there is this pool. I understand. You can be enthralled by an idol of relationship and not even see it and, and, and be so captivated by it that you can't get out. How do I get out? You can be so enthralled by sexuality and, and even pornography. You can't get How do I break it? How do I do it? Colossians 2.15, this is what happens on the cross. Paul says that Jesus, 
disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. These rulers and authorities, he's not speaking of Rome, he's speaking of the principality, these powers, these demonic forces. He put them to open shame, defeating them on the cross. How do we be liberated from idolatry? How do we be liberated from what, whether it's in here, it could be, guys, we're in San Francisco, there could be real demonic, a real demonic thing going on in your life right now. Or it could be just this powerful hold that this idolatry has on you. Both of the, the answers to that are the same. Jesus Christ breaks that. He breaks it. Let's turn to him. Let's repent from our idolatry and let's God, ask God, God, drive this deep in my heart. I'm not just saying, guys, let's worship God because he's like the best option. I'm saying worship God because he alone is creator, redeemer, and the giver of life. Everything else will enslave you and destroy you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I pray that, God, that by your spirit we would learn and grow. And, and God, I ask God even right now that, that, that you would help us to let go of idolatry. And the things that we worship. And I know that we might think this is such an old word, idolatry. But God, I know that there's, there's some people in here who are in real spiritual bondage. I know people here that are, are, are in, just in, in something they know they shouldn't be in. They know it's just destroying them. They can't get out of it. Christ, break that chain. I pray in Jesus' name. Break that chain. Holy Spirit, would you come in and, and, and move among us and, and break the chains that bind us. Break the idolatry and the sin and the cycles that we all find ourselves in. I pray that we turn to Christ and live. Turn to Christ and live. And we would take communion. And as we take communion, we would say we become one, not with, with these, these demonic sort of wicked things in the world, but the one with Christ, the giver of life, the redeemer, the one who breaks the power of evil. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.